0: Hi, I'm Christine and I'm Alan we'd like to thank you for tuning into our discussion this week
1: our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful
0: so now we invite you to join us as we together
1: listen listen for for the the word. word
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to our podcast. Hey, guess what? We are at the end of the church here, and it's Christ the King Sunday we're going to be looking at. Um, So we're, we're moving away from Mark, and we're headed back to John. And so we're in John 18, 33 through 38. Go ahead, Alan. Tell us uh, about this passage.
1: Yeah, thanks, Uh, Christy. Our our Gospel lesson this week presents us with the dialogue that John's Gospel reports between Jesus and Pilate during his trial with the Roman governor. Um, As it turns out, I think if we are paying attention, it would seem likely that the content of this passage is intended more for the readers or hearers of John's Gospel than for Pilate himself. Uh, Because Jesus makes some amazing declarations about himself and his kingdom that don't seem to, to be directed at Pilate, you know, directly.
0: In, interesting. I, I, I'm noticing that this is unique. This is not a synoptic. It
1: is indeed. Yeah. Um. You know, the 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 irony is that all three synoptic gospels omit any kind of dialogue between Jesus and Pilate, and they refuse that they, they report basically that Jesus refused to say anything to Pilate. The only words they report is that when Pilate, Pilate asked Jesus, "Are you the King of the Jews?" Jesus answered, "You say so," mm-hmm. and that's found in Matthew. Mark and Luke. Now, John does report it, he just reports it later. So I find that interesting. He does use those words at one point mm-hmm. in the in, in the interview, but it comes up later. Um, otherwise, in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus does not respond to the charges made against him. Now, again, that comes up at a later point as well, in John 19, outside mm-hmm. of our passage. Uh, so I find it interesting that John uses both of those bits of the Gospel tradition, but You know, you get a whole different feel about you know the dialogue between Jesus and Pilate Mm -hmm. in the Synoptic Gospels than what you find in John's Gospel.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, That's that's interesting. I you wonder, you wonder. I guess just because John is is giving us a different lens, and yet you know where is john john's material from well
1: again most scholars would would say that john has a unique source of gospel material right. so it could be that it also could be that john is is constructing this narrative because he wants us to get this information and he uses this dialogue as a way of of mm-hmm. of conveying these ideas about jesus and his kingdom
0: yeah and that that makes sense because it puts everything in the context of john and john's gospel, so mm-hmm. that that does both i mean there's two good explanations yep. there yeah um okay, so moving on uh what this needs to be put in the context obviously right yeah
1: because the really the episode of Jesus' trial before Pilate begins in john eighteen twenty eight And so I think it's essential for us to take that into consideration. It would seem that this part of the trial took place in a relatively public part of Pilate's residence because John tells us that the Jewish leaders wouldn't enter due to possible ritual defilement, Mm, which would disqualify them from taking part in the Passover. So Pilate went to hear out their charges. And in this segment of the trial, we also see Pilate's reluctance to punish Jesus for what he saw... As matters pertaining to the Jewish law, not Roman law. Right. And actually, this theme of reluctance on Pilate's part is is brought out. Uh, it's really an important part of John's account of Jesus' trials and ultimate execution. And in fact, John tells us later that Pilate tried to release him. Right, in John right. nineteen twelve. It takes
0: mentally. It takes Pilate away from being the bad guy. Yes, you know? indeed.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, oh. I mean, you know in john's gospel you know you don't get that image at all right um in the synoptic gospels Pilate's only effort to release jesus was kind of the lame effort of of offering the crowds the choice of releasing jesus to them or releasing barabbas Mm -hmm. and they chose barabbas so it seems like john's gospel wants to place the responsibility for jesus death solely on the shoulders Mm -hmm. of the jewish leaders on the other hand, the synoptic Gospels implicate Pilate as much by his inaction as by anything else.
0: Right, right.
1: So we get a different feel for this it, whole it, situation. It, yeah, yeah, it does
0: give you... different. And as as you're saying this, I keep thinking about um, depending on what Gospel you're more comfortable with, which is John or the synoptics, if you will, I think depends on kind of how you come out thinking about the entire situation. I mean, yeah. how many conversations have do we have today of the jews killed jesus well why mm-hmm. who, who make who who made that assumption or
1: well and I, the I, bad again guy, that's right well but that's that's clearly the implication of john's gospel is that mm-hmm. it is the jewish leaders who right. were responsible for this Well,
0: exactly so yeah. there's that's how john leaves this yeah um so tell us more about Pilate. What what else might be going on there?
1: Well, I think part of what's going on here is a little bit of a power play between Pilate and the Jewish leaders yeah. who brought Jesus to him. And so, uh, one aspect of this scene in, in, involves Pilate kind of seeking to force those who brought Jesus before him. They're not really named here, but I think we can assume, assume that they include the chief priests and the temple police mentioned in John 19.6. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, basically Pilate is trying to force these folks to play out their hand in public so to speak um you know there is some implication perhaps they may have had some interaction prior to this i, I you know i i would find that perfectly under that you makes know, sense, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. um but um at this point it's like um pilot's going to make them basically say what they mean in public. So he begins by asking, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answer rather vaguely, if this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. So Pilate's response is, well, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And so then the Jews, which again we've seen in, in before is shorthand in John's gospel for the Jewish leaders, mm-hmm. here likely include specifically the chief priests and the temple police. They weren't satisfied with that because they said they weren't permitted to put anyone to mm-hmm. death. Now, while it's true that they weren't allowed to use crucifixion as a mode of execution, if they found him guilty of blasphemy, they could have taken Jesus and stoned him to death.
0: Right, that, right.
1: They, so that's not, I think, I think folks come away from this with this implication that they didn't have the power to execute anyone. No, they could, they could do that. Exactly. I mean, they just, they had to do it a different but, way.
0: But, but hanging Jesus on the cross. Yes. Gives a very it 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 takes the guilt away from them and well, puts it, and on it on the, the Roman and
1: it it you know the cross was such a humiliation exactly that you know I think in their minds it would remove him from becoming a martyr yes and and instead he would have been seen as another failed because because there were other messianic claimants right. that had been crucified and so they wanted him to be seen in that light as someone who falsely claimed to be the messiah and was crucified because of yeah, it. yeah yeah okay okay
0: so why would why would crucifixion um accomplish what they had in mind
1: yeah well um that's a good question um i mean i think just the humiliation factor of crucifixion is certainly involved. I think, you know, the fact that there were other messianic claimants who had been crucified, you know, and so guilt by association mm-hmm, they want mm-hmm. to show him to be a false mess messiah. That's one aspect. George R. Beasley-Murray in his uh, commentary on John suggests that it has to do with the statement in Deuteronomy 21:22 and 23, mm-hmm. when someone is convicted of a crime punishable by death and is executed and that would have happened by stoning and you hang him on a tree his corpse must not remain all night on the tree. You shall bury him that day, for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Now, so again, you know this has to do with the way in which the Jewish law per, uh, uh, permitted
0: mm-hmm. capital
1: punishment. So they were to execute the person by stoning, and only right. after the person was dead were they to hang him on a tree uh, as sort it. of a public display yeah. of this yeah. is what happens to someone who commits right. blasphemy. Right, right. So um, you may you may recall that in Galatians three thirteen Paul makes the argument that Jesus was crucified specifically to take the curse of God upon himself because he makes this argument that there's a there's a passage in the old testament that says that cursed is everyone who does not do everything in the law, basically. And so he says we're under the curse of the law, but Jesus takes that curse upon himself oh, by right. being hanged on a tree, oh, right? By right. being hanged on a cross.
0: Right.
1: And and you know and and Beasley Murray seems to be Following that line of thinking, my question is to the extent to which the Jewish people would have thought of it this way, or was this something that Paul put together? And so I don't know that it would be. I'm not sure whether it would be accurate to read Paul's line of thinking back into the Jewish mm. leaders' mindset. I mean, I think clearly, crucifixion was a humiliating death. Right. Also, there were other false claimants to be the Messiah who had been crucified, and they. I think they clearly wanted him to be associated, and you know, by implication, he his claims were false. Uh, whether this aspect of the cur, you know, the fact that 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 they would, that, that people would see him as being cursed by God because he was crucified, whether that was, was, was the case or not, you know, through this connection with Deuteronomy 21, I'm not so sure about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And that probably leads further discussion. You know, I, I keep thinking in my mind, um, um, I guess uh, what, what, what I'm thinking right now is just really the visual difference between mm-hmm. hanging on a cross and, and looking up versus a stoning, which is really a, a downward type mm-hmm. of thing. I think there's something um, a ritually um, significant in that as well. I mean, I think th- between the the crucifixion and the stoning, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, so here's... Here's my understanding. Given the Romans' use of crucifixion, it was definitely a terror tactic. Right. And it was, it was, a, it was a, the most, um, shall we say, blatant display of Roman power, that you don't cross us. And I think all of that would have been associated with the Jewish leaders wanting Jesus to die by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans and not... By stoning to death at their hands. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 My
0: historian side of me just says, look... um they wanted the Romans to put him to death. That's exactly. the most obvious thing in my mind. Exactly. It's like we can place the blame off on them and, 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 and exactly. wash our hands of it. So exactly. that, that's my historian's mind. My
1: well, and, and the other part of it then would have been just the terror of crucifixion. Would They, they would see that as sort of effectively squelching any enthusiasm that, right. that his death as a martyr might generate.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. All right.
1: So the authors or editors of John's gospel then insert another of their narrative asides here um, in verse 32, this was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Mm -hmm. And so again, you know, Jesus knew he was going to be crucified. In John's gospel, Jesus knows what his fate is gonna be from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And we're also reminded that while in the eyes of the Jewish people, crucifixion would have involved total humiliation, um, the authors or editors of John's gospel consistently presented as his being lifted up or glorified through the cross, the resurrection, and his return to God's presence.
0: So I guess, you know, here's this, um, here's this discussion between Pilate and Jesus. Is this public? I mean, when we look at the synoptics, all this stuff happening seems very, very public. I keep yes. thinking of its yes. presentation in movies and stuff, and yet... Mm-hmm. This seems like it's more intimate—a more intimate conversation. Right, and and that's
1: the case in John's Gospel. There are parts of Jesus' trial that are public, and there are parts of Jesus' trial that are private. And the you know we this brings us then to our gospel lesson for today in John eighteen thirty three, and the implication is that this part of the trial was at least semi-private. The Synoptic Gospels don't reference any of this material at all, mm-hmm. right. uh, which at least raises the question whether we're dealing with a segment of the gospel tradition that they didn't have access to, or whether it's a composition by uh, the authors and or editors of John's gospel. But as we've seen before in our treatment of Mark's passion narrative, the primary accusation leveled against Jesus is that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And this is where Pilate begins in his private questioning of Jesus. He asked Jesus you know, straight out, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Um, and, you know, one of the things we see right off, right off the bat is that the whole interview, this, this private or semi-private interview between Pilate and Jesus, seems to convey the impression that there's a much greater openness on Jesus' part to talk than what we find in the Synoptic Gospels. Because in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus just simply says, you say so, and then he refuses to answer anything else. Right, so
0: tell us about this. How does this conversation play out?
1: Well, then Pilate's reply to Jesus is rather blunt. You know, Jesus says, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? I guess, presumably trying to see if there's an opening here for him to talk to Pilate about spiritual things. But Jesus, Pilate simply says, you know, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own mm-hmm. nation and chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I I kind of see, you know, in some respects, Pilate's comment would have been an understatement in the sense that, you know, he's the Roman governor and the Romans, you know, to the Romans, the Jewish people were a backwards and unrefined people. They were provincials in the very worst sense of the term. But I also find Pilate's question, what have you done Rather disingenuous, because I think it is unlikely that Pilate had no notion of what who Jesus was or what he had right, done prior to this trial. Right. I right. think Pilate knew very well what Jesus had done. I,
0: I do, too. I, I, I have always thought about this, though, wondering if, um, you know, really this was just a nuisance for Pilate, and he would really like <laughs> not to have to deal with it at all. So, Oh, I think what, there's that's what, part you of know, it. I could even do you know, I know what you've done. What what have you done? You know, get this out of my realm. I don't want to deal with this right, stuff. I right. I don't want to be in this stupid province out here. I want to be swimming the Rome exactly. He didn't. So it was, I,
1: it was it was not a plum post to be the ex, governor of Judea. Exactly. It was like a, toward the bottom of the ladder of of it, Roman political exactly.
0: positions. Exactly. So you know that's kind of, I I wish the thing we never get with the with with scripture is we never get the tone of voice. You know. Yeah. Right. But I think. I think there's some some tone implied here, maybe. Sure. How, How does Jesus respond?
1: So instead of answering Pilate's question, Jesus makes a pronouncement, and it seems like this pronouncement is really the point of this whole scene, and really one of the major emphases in John's passion narrative in the account of Jesus' trial. Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. What I find, one of the things I find interesting here is that supposedly Jesus says that his followers would, keep, would fight to keep him from being handed over to the Jews. Well, this is the way the authors and editors of John's Gospel speak they speak about the jews right. as the jewish leaders right so right. that that raises a question mark to me that this is something that has been placed on jesus lips by the editors and authors of, mm-hmm. of the gospel right and i think again that the primary audience for this declaration is not pilate who could care less really but rather the readers here or hearers of john's gospel and you know that's that's the whole point of this private interview in right. John's gospel is that John the authors and editors want to convey this information to the hearers and rea- mm-hmm. and or readers of the gospel.
0: Right, right.
1: Now, one thing about this is that Jesus statement about my kingdom mm-hmm. is exceptional. Uh only here and in Luke 22:30 does Jesus speak about my kingdom. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in Luke 22, there he promises that the apostles will eat and drink with him in my kingdom, Mm -hmm. everywhere else, everywhere else. He speaks of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of Mm -hmm. God or simply the kingdom. Um, nevertheless, you know, so again, this all leads me to think that basically the authors and our editors of John's gospel have composed this and put these words on the lips of Jesus. Mm. But I think what they're saying is, you know, they're they're trying to convey the truth about Jesus as they understand him. Right. And putting this on Jesus' lips would have been, I think, in their minds, an acceptable way of doing that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the idea in John's Gospel here is that his kingship is sort of the sovereign action right. of the Son through whom God performs His saving works and speaks His saving words. Right. So God is acting in His sovereign way through Jesus in this rather unique and strange form of kingship that Jesus claims with Pilate. Yeah. yeah. So then the implication is that Jesus is acknowledging that he is truly a king, but not in the way Pilate understood it.
0: Right, exactly. What that makes we're just talking about this doesn't make sense, but this does make sense in Mm -hmm. in 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 our theology, right? This makes sense to us. So um so tell tell us more about this. What is there is there any other connection with rest of scripture
1: yeah yeah so uh, you know one of the things especially here is that Jesus elaborates my kingdom is not of this world you know and um again that's a that's a that's sort of a strange statement on the lips of Jesus we don't we don't we don't hear that kind of language mm-hmm. in the synoptic Jesus but What this reminds me of is Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream about a statue with a head of gold, a torso of Mm -hmm, silver, mm -hmm. legs of bronze, and feet made of iron mixed with clay in Daniel chapter 2. And in the dream, a stone that was cut not by human hands crushed the statue. And so Daniel interprets the dream with reference to four great kingdoms and says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. forever. So this kingdom that shall stand forever, you know, that's, I think that's the clearest resonance that I find with mm-hmm. a statement like what Jesus is making, my kingdom is not of this world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, otherwise, Jesus could also be referring to the notion, which is widespread in the Hebrew Bible, that God reigns over all the kingdoms of the mm-hmm. earth from his throne. And this, you know, we find in the lectionary uh, reading from the Psalms this week. Psalm 93 is one of the classic Psalms about God reigning over right, all things from right. his
0: throne. And actually, as you're talking about that, that is one of the pieces that is pulled out in some of the readings I did, is that the Psalms pulled out, I think it was um, in Luther. So, mm-hmm. That makes sense. Because it's
1: one of the, you know, there there are a number of psalms, but this is one of the one of the strong declarations right. that the Lord reigns right. over all things.
0: So, now tell us, how does Jesus then distinguish His kingdom from? from the the
1: others basically he says if my kingdom were from this world my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the jews and i think the point is that the kingdoms of the world rise and fall by battles Mm -hmm. between their armies on the other hand in john's gospel jesus fully aware of his destiny from the beginning, right. as we've seen before. He intentionally fulfills that destiny throughout, which we've seen before as well. And that includes laying down his life in order to take it up again in accordance with the authority given to him by the Father, which we saw in John chapter 10. Uh, and, and we see this later in the in the in the sort of the the, la- the other part of the interview that as it goes on in John chapter 19 with Pilate there's more of this interview and Jesus says to Pilate you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from yeah,
0: above yeah yeah and you know Pilate then asks this question so you are a king you know and i'm wondering how do we make sense of this I
1: king- think i would have inflected that so you are a king
0: Oh, there you go, and and maybe there. with a
1: little bit of irony. So you are a king
0: again. See, we need these inflections in there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. There, we go. there I, we
1: go. I think I think Pilate probably found it hard to believe, but he he he. I think he hears that Jesus is claiming to be that, and of course Jesus replies with the rather ambiguous, "You say that I am a king." And here we find the "You say so" from the Synoptics. This is where John includes that part, mm-hmm. but it's still it's more. You know. Jesus says more right. than he does in the Synoptic right, Gospels. Right, right. You the, say that I am a king. We have a different
0: image now of king, a little bit. And, well, and we also have a readers. different,
1: whole different image of the interview between Pilate and Jesus. Right. Because Pilate, Jesus is being, you know, he's revealing some very deep things about himself to Pilate, who seems to, you know, that he could care less.
0: Right, right.
1: So he doesn't stop there, though. Jesus proceeds to reveal... To Pilate, which I find interesting, that for this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And again, to me, I find this to be very resonant of the voice of the editors and authors of John's gospel. And some of the places where we've seen this kind of language in the gospel before, you know, we've seen like in John chapter 3 where, where um the gospel of John contrast those who are of the light and those who are of the darkness, you know, this very distinct kind of either, or thing. And, and, you know, the whole idea of Jesus uh, declaring the truth and everyone who li- belongs to the truth listens to my voice belonging to the truth versus those who don't belong to the truth. All of this to me seems to uh, remind me of the voice of the editors and or authors of the gospel. And so again, I would say that the primary audience for this declaration was the Johannine community, not Pilate. Mm. Pilate could care less about this, and, right. and I mean, ju- the, the 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 authors and editors of the Gospel show that by Paul, by, by by citing Pilate's rather cynical response. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the truth? right but we've already seen the role that the truth plays in john's gospel jesus speaks the truth as the father has given it to him and those who are willing to hear the truth belong to jesus while by implication those who do not hear the truth are condemned for refusing to do Mm -hmm. so and as i said we've seen that in john chapter 3 we saw it in john chapter 12 and and that seems to be a fundamental um part of the theology of the editors and our authors of the of the fourth gospel and and their message to the Johannine community.
0: Very good. So um, later um, later in John's Passion narrative, uh, Pilate uh, tries to release Jesus. So t- tell us about this. Yeah,
1: he, you know, and as I said, you know, in John's Gospel, we really have m- a much stronger sense of Pilate's reluctance to, um, to, to, to condemn Jesus. He's trying to, to do what he can to release Jesus. And um, the chief priests and the police tell him that we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has claimed to be the son of God. In other words, they're mm-hmm. saying he, he is guilty of blasphemy.
0: Right, right.
1: So although it's perhaps not obvious here, I think this provides a tie-in with the lectionary reading from Daniel 7. Okay, and you know there after a dream of four terrifying beasts which are interpreted with reference to four kings in daniel 7 the ancient of days Mm -hmm. who is god appears for judgment and at that time one like a son of man now that's translated human in the nrsv which i think obscures the connection
0: oh sure
1: um was presented before the ancient of days, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not that shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. That's Daniel mm-hmm. seven, thirteen and fourteen, mm-hmm. and that's one of the lectionary readings for, for sure. the day as well. And this emphasis this really is the emphasis of Daniel's apocalyptic vision. The kingdom of God will supplant all the kingdoms mm-hmm. of this world that threaten God's faithful right. people. That mm-hmm. is the message of Daniel's, right. um, you know, visions. Now, while it seems clear, I, I think, that it, this is the passage that is behind Jesus' own use of the Son of Man to refer sure. to himself as a human being who acts with God's own authority, the reference in Daniel 7 itself is unclear. In the interpretation of the dream later in the chapter, it is the people of the holy ones of the Most High who receive the kingdom. Mm-hmm. But I think it's clear that in the Synoptic Gospels, for example, uh, most clearly in Mark fourteen sixty two, mm-hmm. in response to the high priest's question, are you the Messiah? Jesus answers with this passage, you will see the Son of Man, Coming with clouds right, and great glory,
0: right, right,
1: and and so there is a clear link with Daniel seven yeah, thirteen. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In, in that in
1: that aspect of the synoptic version of the uh, of, of Jesus so, trial,
0: and so it makes sense since this is very clearly linked to Daniel that the rest of this also has that. Yeah. has that link. I think that makes.
1: And again, sense. as I said before, you know, I think I think um, the synoptic gospels are much more. Um, I guess consistent about using the son of man when Jesus speaks of himself. Um, John's gospel has several places where that happens. But for the most part, John uses the phrase son of God. And it's kind of like the kingdom of God versus eternal life. In in John's gospel, John is interpreting the kingdom of God as eternal Eternal life life. for those who might not be familiar with the Jewish concept. The same thing is true for the son of man, even though the Jewish people of his day I mean, he's uh, he's almost citing Daniel seven, you know, thirteen,
0: right? Right. <laughs> to the
1: to the to the Jewish leaders, you will see the Son of Man coming with clouds and great glory, and and you know that's almost a virtual citation of that passage. Yeah, and yet they fail to make the connection, or they just can't. They can't make the connection. They can't uh, uh, accept it. Yeah, I don't know how much clearer Jesus could have been with them, you know, uh, but, um, well,
0: because they had their sights, they had their sight set on something else. Yes, right? they did. I yes, mean, they did. and in a way when that is Jesus's destiny, if you will, it, it had to happen that way. Right, I mean, it's this, right. it's this strange com- combination, right, of they should have gotten it, but they were blind to it, but they had to be blind to yeah, it. I mean, yeah, all these pieces, yeah, right? No,
1: right. And so, yeah, in John's gospel, we don't have that language of son of man, but I think the language of son of God would have presupposed some of this background as well.
0: Sure. Sure.
1: So to me, it seems that John's passion narrative really is used to contribute another piece to the revelation of Jesus' glory in the gospel. And that's what we've seen all along as we've looked at John's gospel in various places is that, you know, Jesus' path is one in which his glory is to be revealed. Mm-hmm. And so basically, Jesus faces his imminent death with the authority and power given to him by God and in the confidence that the kingdom with no end will triumph over all the kingdoms of the world.
0: Wow. And I think that's a really dramatic way for Christ the King Sunday to cut them forward.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and Christy's going to share some insights as to what the uh, Reformers had to say about this passage. So go ahead, Christy. Sure.
0: This passage is referenced quite frequently. This is an important concept, of course, when we're talking about um, um, the kingdom um, the kingdom of God and Christ the King, so it does show up, and and I found that there were a few themes in particular, um, and Luther and Calvin both picked up on these, although they have some differences. Um, one is, of course, Christ's kingdom is not of this world, um, and that Christ's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and that is found in both Luther and Calvin, and and undoubtedly um, in the other reformers as well. Now where they differ is Luther uses this to put forth his two kingdoms theory. Um, He says, look, uh, people who are of Christ's heavenly kingdom are also for now part of the earthly kingdom. So remember, we've talked about the two kingdoms before, but here he's pointing out, you can't just belong to just one or the other, but you're in both. So he recognizes that Christ's kingdom has been ushered in with Christ and is present now in his world.
1: You know, I've always wrestled with Luther's notion of two kingdoms, of the two kingdoms. I've always thought, that doesn't make any sense to me. Because to me, there is one kingdom. God is the one who reigns over everything. But the thought across across my mind just now that perhaps um, this is Luther's way of dealing with the ideal and the real you know there's always tension there's always a tension between what's reality and what is the idea mm-hmm. and the ideal toward which we're striving is the kingdom of god fulfilled but right. for now you know we live with the reality that it's not fully f- fulfilled i
0: yes i think part of it and and for luther though you always have to look at luther and his dualism that he comes into understanding everything so mm-hmm. um th- that makes some sense there as well that, that this idea of god's kingdom being perfect and spiritual but the, the kingdom mm. of the world being dominated by sin and evil so i yeah. think i mean i guess I, I guess my mind that.
1: my mind is trained more by the hebrew bible to think more holistically that that the lord right, reigns as right, psalm 93 right. begins the lord reigns i know over all I know. things yeah <laughs> and i and
0: i i don't know if that is how luther's because Luther's not quite on that full page mm-hmm. we? um, and
1: well and and I think you know we've said before Luther was a man uh, with medieval training right, and right. so I'm sure the whole idea of of the power of Satan was something that was still very exactly. real in his mind
0: so moving on with it Luther argues that this kingdom the the, the earthly kingdom will come to an end but not Christ's kingdom. So you see you've got that good evil thing going on there, mm-hmm. even though um, it already exists in this world. So even though Christ's kingdom, it is present now. So that's an interesting space. Christ's kingdoms um, is for those who hear and accept the truth um, according to it. Yeah. Um, now Calvin, um, Calvin has a different take on this. Calvin goes... Um, also to suggest that it has two components, but that Christ presides over the two components. So Christ hmm. uh, Calvin's got that more holistic mm-hmm. thing that you're thinking of there. But that's that sovereignty of God piece, yeah, right? Yeah. So that you're seeing these two kind of hallmarks of both of these theologies played out with this passage, which is really interesting. Um, so... Is Calvin sees it? There's the whole body of the church that's that's considered the kingdom of God, but then it also belongs to each individual member. So he's seeing, he's using this to describe the the, the breadth of the church. Mm. In other words, um, the kingdom of God is the body of Christ, which we talk about so much. But then he also talks about that call on each individual member to respond ah, to it. So I think that's really interesting yeah. as well. Moving on, there are other voices.
1: <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs>
0: And you, can't, you won't be surprised. There are those um, that, who believe, if, if Christ's kingdom is ushered in, that only those who are Christian, who, who accept that, are, are truly of this kingdom. And therefore, it is okay to take up your sword and kill the godless. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: That's quite a leap for me. Uh
0: yeah. You think? Um, of course these are some of our radicals. Remember, we've talked yeah. about these radical reformation, but there's this idea of, oh, Christ's reign has been ushered in. Those who are of the living remnant are are then called upon to get rid of the godless. Mm. And indeed that is okay in their minds. Lord if you have can mercy. imagine, I know. Um, and of course, obviously big misinterpretation of the scripture there, right? Um, yep. Um, and there are also on the other side of that, um, spiritualists. And I picked up Teresa of Avila, for example, um, who tells her nuns to find Christ within? So there's this idea that the relationship is found that the kingdom is well, inside I would I would have an easier time
1: swallowing that than that we're supposed to take up arms and 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 yeah. eliminate the godly. So it's
0: not it's <laughs> not relying on the world of God, but this internal mysticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what? An, <laughs> you yeah. got it all. So we yeah we get this whole this whole back and forth. So you get those who say, look, that's evil. And on the other side, you get those who are pacifists that say, "No, you shouldn't carry a sword. This is all. This is all about um, the peaceful kingdom of Christ mm-hmm. that is within you. That is, you don't have to worry about." Th- In both cases, one is kill the magistrates because they are representative of this kingdom. The other say, "Ignore the magistrates. The kingdom of God is is mm. is of the world." So you get the whole spectrum. Isn't wow. that wonderful? Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, another theme. Um, that Calvin emphasizes is that um, because Christ is the head of the church and because the church is eternal, nothing can destroy it. So this is really interesting, I think, in context of today because how many people out there are so worried the church is going to come to an Mm -hmm. end? We see declining numbers, but that doesn't fit theologically with what Calvin says. Look, within Calvin's discussion is this confidence in the church and its purpose, um it, again the sovereignty of God coming in what God has planned or the world will indeed eventually carry out. Yeah. It may not look like we think it should, right. but, it wor- it, but it will. Um, well,
1: and just because, for example, churches in Western Europe are empty and just because churches in North America are emptying doesn't mean that, mm-hmm. that the church isn't thriving in other places of the world.
0: Right. So despite whatever adversary problems hit the church, the church will prevail.
1: Absolutely. And then he
0: even goes to this dualism. The devil... According to Calvin, cannot win. Well,
1: I mean, as you're talking, I think about you know, on this rock I will I will build my church, and the gates of hell will shall not prevail against it. Exactly,
0: exactly. So that's another thing. Again, Calvin's theology, providence, Mm -hmm. right there. So you you can hear it in this all he's taking into this passage. This is kind of it becomes an important kind of passage for. Well, and just the
1: whole idea of sovereignty. You know, I I, you know, I never have found it. theologically palatable to think that somehow there's some other entity ruling over life on earth than god mm-hmm. uh, right <laughs> that just doesn't make any sense to me theologically it
0: doesn't it doesn't it, 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 doesn't. it doesn't
1: mean that everybody on earth is obeying god's rule but uh, god it, it, still reigns
0: exactly exactly so the one of the other piece that calvin um brought up was the idea that Christ's kingdom is accompanied by the word. Mm. So this is where our Teresa gets put aside, he says, yeah. it's within, because it has to be accompanied by the word. You know, I, um, I
1: think I might be a little more um, accepting of Teresa of Avila with her inner mysticism, because, you know, as a nun, she would have been immersed in the word with their with their daily um, right. Uh, observance of the of the hours you know they they would have been immersed in exactly the word.
0: yeah 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 exactly and and you, you kind of actually love the things she says they're very yeah. beautiful and yeah. nice i don't think it would have occurred to her that the word wouldn't have been present Absolutely. right right um, no yeah. i don't
1: think so yeah. but
0: but calvin wants to draw this out the word is the sign of the church and there is no sign outside of the word that can represent the church um, and so again, it's kind of a big deal for our worship. The word is always present; it is the core mm. of our experience.
1: Yeah, I think the only way, the only thing I would differ with him on that is to say it should be the word and the spirit. And of course, right. Calvin will say that Calvin at times. Calvin will
0: say that here.
1: But I mean, with uh, in the New Testament, without the spirit, there is no right, church.
0: Right. Exactly. And of course, he gets he he has to get on he gets on Roman Catholics here mm. always, of course. But his point is that there's tendencies to and. Uh, Particularly in Reformation, for people to just say, "Well, God's leading you to this, and to this, this conclusion." So I think he's just addressing this particular space here, saying uh, the kingdom. It's not
1: just what you f- what you think God is saying to you. Right. How does it How does it coordinate with the Word? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah exactly. And yeah. It, you know, it reminded me of and uh, today, how many churches really completely ignore the Word? How many yeah, places are are really giving sermons on on what they think rather than what the exit, Jesus.
1: Well, and and we were talking in the break, and you know, I, I know a guy who I went to college with, who started uh, a fairly large church based on the seeker friendly model, and you know, they don't really believe in getting into any kind of serious Bible, you know, right. during that kind during the Sunday morning worship, you know, and I was pastoring a little bit a tiny Presbyterian church a few miles away, and we read all four lectionary. Mm-hmm. Um, readings every Sunday because. I believe that the word has to do its work. You know? Exactly. I don't yeah. want. I don't want the only word in the service to be my sermon. I want the. I right. want the, the word of the Lord to be spoken.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Can you imagine? I, I remember when I was much younger. So I'm giving myself a little bit of break here. Much when I was a kid, but I remember this pastor asking, "What's the most important part of the service?" And I said, "The sermon." And he's like, "No, <laughs> the scripture." <laughs> but that perception that i had you know yeah. and so it reminds you that some of these churches where you stand up for the gospel mm-hmm. actually has oh, yeah. ha- reminds everyone this is the focus yeah. you know yeah. we don't do that but um yeah. I, I i have done it at, from time to time um in in churches where they're they're trying to highlight something to remind us of that centrality of the word so mm-hmm. pretty cool um and of course, I did mention once before, but there was this anti-Roman sentiment that comes up in everything, and 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 really um, indicating that the Roman, the Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church is really are really God's enemies. They don't adhere to the Word, and instead they mesmerize people with. Well, and if litter. you think
1: about it, I mean, I mean, um, you know. As opposed to the Reformation churches, the Roman Catholic Church was would still be reading the scripture in Latin. Exactly. So, And nobody in the worship would have even understood exactly. what was being said. And and although the word was being read, you know, I mean, it was being read in a language that no one right. could even comprehend. Well, so that was the point?
0: And also there was always the attack on what they considered the great additions to mm, the word surely. based on... Um, um, based on this idea that the Pope could speak for Christ, that he was mm-hmm. that ongoing person, yes. and therefore there's yes. all these additions, yes. and saying, look, they've gotten so far away from it in their behavior and, mm-hmm. and in their actions, and he's particularly um, attacking all the um, extras, well, um, the, the pomp, the circumstance, the, oh, yeah, all, yeah, right. all of those types of of things that distract you from the word. Surely,
1: yeah. surely, yeah.
0: Um. The Lord's Prayer also comes into this discussion. And and another reformer, um, um, Balthasar Hohmeyer, notes that um, um, despite our desire to claim we are of Christ's world, we are of this world now. Um, In other words, uh, we can't elevate ourselves beyond our human reality um, like some of these peaceful groups want to do. Mm. Utopian groups. Yeah, yeah. these utopian groups. But we must accept our brokenness in the world. Yeah. Um, only, only Christ is fully of the other world without sin.
1: I still would want to say that, nevertheless, you know, we we belong to Christ.
0: Exactly. And that we are a part of exactly. Christ's kingdom. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think Hubei would as well to some extent. Mm-hmm. He's just trying to say, look, we're, we're living. You can't. You can't remove yourselves completely from this world. Did yeah. you have some? Re- some responsibility to be active in this world
1: yeah there's no there's no christian perfectionism on this side exactly. of, on this side of uh, of the resurrection i guess
0: now that's kind of the theological look at this whole thing and how these reformers have dealt with this kind of theologically and and how they're understanding christ's kingdom in the world but it has very real historical implications for how rulers have come to rule mm. over the course of history And so um, there's this idea that um, of a Christian kingdom, um, and Christ the King has um, given away to, um, to many different things. One is that a heavenly kingdom can really exist on earth.
1: Surely, Oh gosh, from the time of Charlemagne, A, right? That was oh, the um, implication.
0: Well, I'd say Constantine, right?
1: <laughs> no, I, yeah, that's what I meant to <laughs> but, say. Oh, but, well, both
0: of them. Yeah, They're from huge the time both of, pillars, from right? From the time
1: of Constantine, yeah, definitely. Yeah,
0: huge, both huge pillars in this idea of being creating this Christian kingdom on earth. Um, now, in both the case of Constantine and Charlemagne, um, 500 years later, they're both abusing, if you will, the church to, for their power. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's this big debate. One, one question is whether Constantine really had any knowledge of the true faith, although he was willing to allow church the church fathers, if you will, or the later fathers to get together to to create a, a consistent church in mm-hmm. Nicaea. In, in but in terms of what, I don't think he really cared what they believed.
1: Right. <laughs> Maybe on a
0: big fair. He does he does claim that he came to faith through his mother Mm -hmm. and it meant a lot to his mother. And so there may have been something genuine in there, but, um, probably mostly that he could rule this
1: right this it was area. a pragmatic it, it, approach exactly. he wanted to unify his kingdom and he saw that the church could do that could for do him. that
0: exactly yeah. Yeah. um and and charlemagne now charlemagne what's interesting I, I may have talked about him before so you you know you have the fall of rome and you have everything has fallen apart politically and so charlemagne's the first that's going to really reunite um uh, most of West, western europe so mm-hmm. what is now germany and france and um, Charles the Great, if you will, in in English, he decides I can do this by by using the strength of the Roman Catholic Church, which yeah. indeed is the kind of only consistent institution in the entire area. They have already united their liturgy together; they've already united some of their canon law together. So they've kind and they've got through the Pope this kind of kind of unity, even though. Sp- Politically, there is no unity.
1: Well, but but I mean, by this time, though, I mean I would think that that the the you know the Pope in Rome, his his um, uh, primacy among the other bishops in the church would yes. have been well established.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's who has power. So Charlemagne, who's now wanting to really claim a political power at a much larger scale, is going to use the Pope to accomplish that. And he does that by having the Pope crown Mm him um, saying, look, my authority as King comes under God. Yeah. Kind of a big deal. Um, However, um, in practicality, once he is able to have that kind of unity, then he, and he actually does a lot of great things. It's called the um, Charlotte, Carolingian Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And so he actually Kind of has a reawakening as an early rebirth, if you will. Um, he's the one that introduces the small script, um, the Car- Carolingian minuscule, that they can then begin copying text at a much faster rate and save space on the very expensive parchment because you've got this now small letters they can use for Greek instead sure. of just the capitals. Sure. So, and he also um, brings in a, a group of um, of advisors that he'll send out throughout the kingdom to come back that are, are their political advisors, but they're also religious advisors that come back. And he also does quite a few forced conversions to again, Mm. unify everyone together. so there's a lot of things that Charlemagne does that um, will, will provide that unity and actually kind of provide that, the stability for the church to grow ultimately throughout the middle ages and in, you know, into the Renaissance. Uh,
1: My understanding though, is that Charlemagne sort of became a rival to the Pope in terms of power.
0: He, he does, but his kingdom falls apart when he, Mm -hmm. um, when he dies. Yeah. So he's really not, I mean, he's, I guess historically they still kind of see him as someone who helps support the ultimate spread of faith, Mm -hmm. um, more than, um, anything else. Um, I think it's later on though is is how power is used and, mm-hmm. and so this idea of oh I'll be crowned by the Pope. Oh, now I'll just take on the power as I want. So this big what we call investiture controversy emerges. And I've talked about that before of, you know, who has the right, right. to um, who has the right to ordain bishops? Is it the is it the political ruler or is the is it the is it the is it the pope? And so they get into this battle of who has more power. Now, mind you, there's different ideology going on in the eastern part of the kingdom mm-hmm. so when you get to the byzantine empire you get um, and that's the roman empire in the east after um the fall of the west um, right. so who they adopt what's called cassaro papism where you've got the the um emperor who is actually um directly under god mm. not under the patriarch mm. so the patriarch doesn't end up having the kind of power as the pope he is he is a co-player In it, in that his job is to make sure the church is okay, but the reality is the power comes directly from God. So this ideology, as it passes along, gets gets um, brought into the West, and all of a sudden you've got Western kings saying, "I don't need to pay attention; I have power from God." And so you get to the theory of divine right of kings.
1: Well, and we should we should clarify probably that the patriarch of Constantinople was in the Eastern Empire what the the equivalent kind of. of what the Pope was yes. in the Western Empire, but
0: one would argue that never had the kind of power that yeah. the Pope would have because since, you always have
1: since the 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 Emperor had had his power exactly. directly from God exactly. Wow. Yeah. Well, and that makes sense though because that was sort of the Eastern you know in Eastern Empires like the Persian Empire mm-hmm. and things like this you know the 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 kings, the emperors, the pharaohs, you know whoever they were, they were seen to have been divine basically right. because right. they were ruling
0: exactly and and oddly enough once you get to i would say this kind of absolute era and uh, um, absolutist kings i would say they would they thought of themselves as being almost divine i mean you know louis the 14th the sun king has himself mm-hmm. represented in the sun and of course what mm-hmm. we, did we see we've seen that in the ancient world where right. um there's a divinity with associated with the sun so um even though they would say that they are were fine christian kings they still saw themselves as as having you know they themselves had this kind of direct call from god Well, and, and
1: really a sense of absolute power
0: oh yeah absolute and power of the church too yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so um anyway there's some interesting history that actually we can trace to this passage on wow. on christ the king
1: that's amazing yeah thanks
0: thanks Hi, everybody. We are back um, and we've been thinking about really what the kingdom of God really is. I mean, this is really um, what this this um, this passage is introducing us to. And when I think about that today and I think about a secular society that seems to have so much power, I wonder what is the kingdom of God and how does this um, is this just a theory or is this really something Mm -hmm. that we can attach ourselves to?
1: Well and you know this reminds me of the situation of the churches that were addressed by the revelation uh, another book in the johannine sort of part Correct, of the right. new testament although we it's, it's doubtful that that um John the apostle had any direct connections with it um but um you know and as i've put it to people this way um the book of revelation um is one of the the books of the New Testament that most strongly emphasizes God reigns sovereignly from his throne and that God's sovereign power will accomplish God's will Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. as one of my favorite... um, Um, expositors of of revelation puts it um, the book of revelation is about the fulfillment of the first three petitions of the lord's prayer hallowed Mm -hmm. be thy name thy kingdom come Mm -hmm. thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven
0: well and as you described it there i mean you're just you're really talking about the entirety of scripture that has a beginning and it has an end and it really makes sense in that context Mm -hmm. however i'm going to put out how many folks out there i mean don't think Revelation should even be in the Bible. Right, because right. they find they find the imagery um the almost anti Christian
1: Yeah, and, and I think that's that's a discussion the full discussion is for another day, but I would right. just say it's a matter of um, of of missing the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. You know, all right. of that all of the sort of horrific imagery that belongs to the apocalyptic exactly. sort of setting. But there is a prophetic message through the book of Revelation that I think, transcends some of the more gruesome images and the more right, violent images. Right. And that is that God is the one who reigns from the throne. Uh, or I, as I've put it before, I, I quote the Rich Mullins song, you know, g- g- the book of Revelation is 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 meant to reassure Christians living in a world that doesn't always confirm their faith that our God is an awesome God. He mm-hmm. reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Mm-hmm. And, and And just right. to go on, basically one day God's reign will be um, completed and it will be fulfilled mm-hmm. on earth as it is in heaven now you know um if you put yourself in a position of a person who has who, who was in one of those seven cities in asia minor right uh, that 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 the book of revelation was written to um you know th- there was no sunday day off Right. Sunday was a work day. Right. So they're going to worship either very early in the morning before the sun is up or maybe late at night after the work day is mm-hmm. finished. And, you know, on the way, they may pass a Roman patrol you know which is a reminder of roman power right on the way you know i think i've mentioned before i've been to the pergamon museum in berlin and and they have the the reconstruction of the entrance to the altar to zeus that was right. that was um, built in Pergamum, and and that someone may very well have had to pass on their way to a house church to proclaim Jesus as Lord, mm-hmm. and and here's here's this massive you know reminder that sees that that Zeus is Lord, right? right. And and so um, in that setting, then I think. I think the the emphasis was to say, no, God's kingdom is a kingdom that will never end. God's kingdom is a kingdom that will ultimately be the one that will... It is the true reality now, and it will ultimately define reality on earth. There may be other kingdoms right now that seem to prevail, right? but like the stone that was cut without human hands um, basically... um, Smashes the 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 statue that represents the kingdoms of this world. Right. So I I don't know that I want to use that violent of an image again. Daniel is is in the apocalyptic vein as well, but ultimately God's kingdom, you know, will right be it is the ultimate reality now, and it will one day define all reality.
0: I I love that. And, And there's a couple things that you said that I think are important. Point pull out. One is the type of literature Revelation is, and mm-hmm. Daniel, and that these are. This, I remember I, we tend to come at the the scripture, or I guess many people do is just kind of reading it, kind of kind of. It's, kind of this flat line and mm-hmm. and kind of looking at it as all of it's the same and all of it's some kind of history or some kind of predictable right, history. And right. you have to understand the type of literature it is. And that, and that way then, under, if, in fact, it tells us even so much more about the human experience right. and about God's God in our life when you can tell that, oh my gosh, the scripture comes at it with all different kinds of literature mm-hmm. that allows us then yeah. to really get a fullness. So that was one of the first things. The other thing that... That I pulled out with that is this, this just deep theological um, <sighs> theological discussion this has, and and really this you know when I live day to day and I get panic, but I really think about the beginning and the end, and when I really think about why I am here, when I ask those kind of deep philosophical fundamental questions about life then I have to come to that conclusion that I'm here for a purpose mm. and that God put me here. And and all of a sudden, this all makes a lot of sense, and it gives me this kind of hope and confidence um, that you were talking about, yeah. even, even if you're moving through literature that is sometimes hard with yeah. the imagery.
1: Well, and and the fundamental, I guess the foundational theological affirmation is the Lord reigns. and And, you know... I've often compared the book of Revelation in terms of its function to the book of Psalms because in the Psalms, you have right. all these visions of God on the throne. Right. And you have that in Revelation mm-hmm. as well. And so you have this, I mean, that's the fundamental theological conviction in the Bible mm-hmm. is that God reigns um, in, in mercy and grace and love, mm-hmm. in truth and justice and faithfulness. You know, God reigns over all things, and that nothing that anyone does in this world, none of the powers of this world, none of the kingdoms of this world can change that fact, can diminish that fact, even though In, uh, you know, in this world, we may seem to be at the mercy of those powers. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think it shifts more into the language of John's gospel, because then you have this language of, you know, my kingdom is not of this world, or you have this language of Jesus saying you would have no power over me unless it were given to you, you know, and and it's this fundamental uh, theological affirmation that God reigns over all things. Mm -hmm, And I mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what draws me to the reformed tradition and to the tradition of Calvin, because Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, just makes sense to me. Like I said before, I mean, the whole idea that there are two kingdoms in this world has never made any sense to me. It's
0: actually very unsettling, but once it really is because and, – and how many people live in that space and how many people then spend their faith on uh, – it's like we've talked about this before. Their faith becomes in almost seemingly in what's going to happen – if if, if, if if we let into the devil and the devil takes over and all of a sudden our faith isn't in Christ, but it seems to be in it's, the evil. It's uh-huh. like
1: they believe more in evil and its mm-hmm. manifestations in the world than yeah. they believe in God. Yeah. And I understand that to some extent because evil and its manifestations in the world are just right up in our face mm-hmm. all the time. They and, are. And, um, you know, I, one of the things I've taught about the book of revelation is that part of the function of the stark imagery is to give people sort of a, a counter imagery. You know, you've got the imagery Mm -hmm. of the Roman legions. Well, they're, they're seemingly, you know, um, all powerful, you know, no one can stand against the Roman legions. right? Right. Or you've got the imagery of these, these, um, just magnificent temples to the Greek gods, you know, and sort of a testament to their power. And, um, you know, these probably poor Christians are meeting in a home and gathering together in in, uh, apparent weakness, right? Right. Right. Uh, uh, With all these other images of strength around them. And the book of Revelation is written to give them sort of this set of counter images of God's power as being the true power Mm
0: -hmm. that
1: defines all reality and that you know the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord, the kingdoms of our the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. You know, that's the theme. And and so this this idea of Christ's reign and of the reign of God and the kingdom of God is central there to Mm -hmm. to the whole idea of not only, you know, What are we doing here? What is our purpose? You know, um, um, but you know, how do we how do we face, you know, the evil in this world on a daily basis, but also in the sense of of um, what do we hope for and what do we look forward to?
0: You know, and as you're talking, I'm thinking how awesome, and then I'm thinking of here we are, Christ the King Sunday. Think if we can if we can step into this big worldview picture mm-hmm. because so often we're focused on on something some small nuance of our faith and here we're we're doing big picture theology yes, that's right and what a perfect way to start uh to end our year before then we pick up with advent mm-hmm. and then we start at the, at the beginning yes and, indeed. and so i think um I, anyway i hope that helps you is try to figure out why do we end here
1: right yeah. right thanks Chris. thank you that's our podcast for today if you heard something that was helpful to you please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us
0: it's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of christ
1: we hope you'll tune in next week and in the meantime let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.